Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The beautiful spring weather is a reminder that everyone should have access to an outdoor space, regardless of physical or cognitive disability. Today, we'll hear about the Ability Garden at Callenwold Fine Arts Center and its partnership with the Trellis Horticultural Therapy Alliance. Speaking of gardening, we'll listen back to a segment about In My Granny's Garden, the children's story created by the Atlanta Poet Laureate Pearl Clegg and her husband, writer Zarin Burnett Jr. First, a birthday celebration. If the one-word name of your publication is a city, there's a lot to cover. Atlanta Magazine has been doing just that for 60 years. Betsy Riley is the editor-in-chief of Atlanta. She's with us now via Zoom. Betsy, welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much, Lois. It's great to be here. Congratulations. Celebrating 60 years is a big deal. It is. And, you know, I I discovered uh, that it's the diamond anniversary. So, you know, if anybody's inspired, we're we're taking. (laughs) Okay. I think then um, I'm due some diamonds. And, well, you're right. You are such a gem, so let's get down to this discussion. How did you become involved with Atlanta Magazine? Oh, my goodness. Many years ago, um, I mean, I had read Atlanta Magazine literally since I was a kid. Because when I was growing up um, in Knoxville, Tennessee, we used to come and spend weekends and, you know, in the big city. <laughs> and we would get Atlanta Magazine, so I read it forever. And when I started to freelance, which is when my kids were born, I started freelancing and I started writing for Atlanta and I just fell in love with it and just wrote a little more, a little more. And pretty soon I was there full time. And for about 20 years now, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I freelanced about 10 years before that. So Lee Walburn was um, the editor when I was freelancing and he used to always try to get me to come on staff full time, but 
My kids were little. I wasn't ready to do that just yet. And he still teases me about it to this day as why I didn't come on board when he was still editor. Oh, well, you've made up for lost time with the workload. What do you think differentiated Atlanta Magazine from other local publications early on? Well, I think Atlanta Magazine has always been completely devoted to journalistic integrity. We maintain the old church and state rules where you know, advertisers can't influence our content. We've invested in our content. The beauty of the monthly is you can spend a couple of several months working on a story and really taking a deep dive into it. And we fact check everything relentlessly to a degree that our sources are often like frustrated. Like, do you really want me to confirm the color of the walls? And we're like, yep, yep. Are they green? (laughs) (laughs) So we just sort of still do journalism the old fashioned way. And what makes it unique now? I think the same thing. You know, the news cycle has sped up to such an extreme. And we do, of course, now we have our digital presence where we've produced content much, much more quickly. But still, we are known for taking that deeper dive into stories. We Occasionally, we might break news, but that's really not our goal. Our goal is to take a deeper look. And as you said at the beginning, we look at everything having to do with the city. So we are involved in everything from affordability issues to travel to medical issues, education, you name it, pretty much we are going to cover it. If we were to time travel back to 1961 when the publication started, how would you describe the focus of it then? (laughs) Well, it actually began as um, a Chamber of Commerce publication. And they, the Chamber of Commerce wanted to promote the city. And if you look back into the history, the six, Atlanta in the 60s was really taking off. That was great, but they hired um, a sort of renegade editor, Jim Townsend, who's, who's quite the legend. And this editor was anything but conventional. And so they're just sort of legendary battles between him and the, the guy at the chamber who was in charge and eventually the magazine broke off from the chamber because, you know, they do stories that were not favorable to business. <laughs> that didn't go very well. I can imagine. So how has it evolved over the decades? I think, you know, originally it was a chamber publication and they actually called Jim Townsend, our founding editor, the father of City Time Magazine, called him the father of City Magazines because it was a Yeah, it was a new genre, and he went on to help start magazines all over the country. In the early days, it definitely slanted a little more towards business. It was, I would say, diversity was certainly not a priority in those early days. Uh, You know, it was totally about white men doing business. In January, we sort of did an archival package and looked back decade by decade on how the magazine changed. And I took the 60s because I was curious to see, you know, what it was like. And towards the end of that decade, they were branching out and it wasn't quite so white. Unfortunately, it was still pretty male, (laughs) but we've certainly added diversity over the years and also added a lot more lifestyle content. Well, how could you possibly be true to this city 
without inclusivity. I mean, talk about about the 60s and the 60s in Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement. There was plenty of material. There are three different covers for the 60th anniversary edition of Atlanta Magazine with photos of Jen Heidinger Kendrick, Jeliah Harmon, and Dominique Wilkins, all have the headline, Atlanta's New Way. Why did you choose these particular individuals to be on the anniversary covers? Well, we started with wanting three different generations. Since the magazine had been around for 60 years, we thought it would be fun to play off the three different generations. We wanted people who were familiar to readers. You know, for each generation, those people are familiar. You, some people may not know, um, like we had to tell a lot of people who Jalea was, but you don't have to tell anyone under um, 25 what the renegade dance is. And so we just thought that would be fun. Um, and we couldn't really settle on one person that we felt represented who we are as a city right now. We, we felt it needed multiple voices. Good choice. What does Atlanta's new way mean? Well, of course, it's a play on the old The Atlanta Way slogan that has been around forever. And and some of those slogans that have sort of were birthed in the 20th century, you know, the city too busy to hate and all those things, which really fall short now. As you sort of mentioned, Atlanta has always been a diversity, but Atlanta is Finally, I think embracing that diversity in a way perhaps it hasn't done in the past. And we've got a long way to go, but, you know, getting started. And I think that there will be a new way. And there's a new way because there are younger people are, are starting to come into leadership positions and they, and they look at things differently. Mm-hmm. Your 60th anniversary page on the Atlanta Magazine website is very well done. You list each era with who and what you were covering. How long did it take to put that together, Betsy? You know, we came up with that idea last year, and we just thought, oh, this will be easy (laughs) because we're repurposing content. Well, that was, it was anything but easy. We each took a decade and just went back and we had to go back, you know, our early decades are not digitized. Uh, so we had to take turns going into the office because of COVID and we have um, our archives there and uh, we just dug through it and looked to see what themes emerged decade by decade. And it was really fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's more than a trip down memory lane. It's history being made in this city. Yeah, and some of it was a little embarrassing, but we decided, you know, not to try to cover things up. You know, we we owned up to it where we we screwed up. Well, yeah, under the 1980s section, you have a couple of links that say what we did right and what we did wrong. Yes. (laughs) I'm impressed by your candor, Betsy. You could have made the whole thing self-congratulatory. Why was it important for you to include the good with the bad from past stories or past 
representation of the decades? You know, it's part of our history. Um, and if we don't acknowledge that it happened, then it could happen again. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we need to sort of learn, we need to learn from our mistakes as well as the things we did correctly. And it was just part of who we were in our past and we had to own up to it. Were there any things that made you cringe? Oh, there was a lot that made me cringe. <laughs> you know, I think the things that made me cringe the most were the, the way women were treated, honestly. Because I, I think early on, you know, Atlanta being, you know, in the birthplace of civil rights, even the earliest editors were aware of the need to be open-minded on that score, even though they often weren't. But when it came to the, the things about, they said about women, you know, we had an essay about how women, you know, debating the issue of was it okay for a woman to work because that meant her husband wouldn't have his dinner at six. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow, indeed. Yeah, now, that one hurt. <laughs> bad. What have been some favorite articles you wrote? Oh, my goodness. You know, I have done so much editing in recent years. It's been a while since I had the freedom and the time to really write pieces, especially the long-form pieces, which are my favorite. Um, one of my favorites was um, a piece I did um, on Collier Heights um, back in, it was like May 2010. And I'm, I've also launched, one of the things I've done is launch our home magazine. And so I have an interest in design and architecture. And the reason I got into this story is that this neighborhood was one of the first ranch house neighborhoods in America to go on the National Historic Register. So that's sort of what led me into the story. But when I got started learning about the neighborhood, you know, that was interesting, but that was just such a minor detail. Um, this neighborhood is where wealthy Black Atlantans um, built these really cool mid-century modern homes with great entertaining spaces because though they achieved a great deal of success in Atlanta financially and in the business world and politically in every other way, they still weren't allowed sometimes in restaurants. And so they had their own entertaining spaces and they had these fabulous houses. So um, it was a huge neighborhood, it still is. Uh, there were like 1700 houses eventually. And um, it's, you know, Daddy King lived there and uh, Donald Hollowell. So it just was full of stories. Um, and I was writing this, you know, as Obama was president. And it was just, it was, I don't know, it was a really exciting time. It sounds like it was a deeply personal experience for you. Any stories that are milestones in terms of the publication? you can tell us about? Uh, one story that I've always found the most memorable um, was actually written in 1971 uh, by Ann Rivers Siddons, um, whom you will be familiar with. Um, yes. she, went on to, she went on to be a novelist. Um, actually, Jim Townsend 
hired her to write like captions because he said she was really good at frou-frou. <laughs> um, but there was a lot more to her than frou-frou. Oh, um, yes. And so she wrote a, one of her first feature stories was in 1971, and it's called Made in Atlanta, M-A-I-D. Uh, Tara is behind her, but it's a long road to where she wants to go. And she went and interviewed the um, black housekeepers um, in Buckhead and other, you know, wealthy areas of Atlanta and got to know they were making efforts to unionize at the time and really sort of took the blinders off that sort of myth that they were just, you know, happy and <laughs> loved the kids that they took care of, which they did love the kids they took care of, but explore. It was like an early version of the help. So that's a fascinating read. It's on our website if you want to look it up. It's uh, Made in Atlanta. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, 40, 50 years ahead of the help, but a much less sentimental portrayal. Small publications and news outlets have folded, I mean, ceased to exist during the pandemic. And other big news outlets have been affected as well, going digital or conducting interviews virtually, such as this one. Betsy, how did the pandemic affect Atlanta Magazine? Well, um, like everyone, you know, it's a little over a year ago now, we had that you know, sudden move to working from home. Uh, if I've only been in my office mm, a handful of times since last spring. And if I go into my office, the desk calendar is still set on March, 2020. It's like, it's like Pompeii, you know, it's like this <laughs> space frozen in time. So we suddenly were working from home. We had to, we had the, it was a, we were a week away from shipping our May issue and it was supposed to have a travel cover on it. And we felt like we had to suddenly shift gears. So we all helped report um, a story, an oral history of the beginning of the pandemic. Of course, we thought this was gonna be something that only lasted a few months and we better hurry up and write about it. But we threw together an entirely new cover story and learned how to produce the magazine digitally in a week. Um, which was a challenge. We were used to circulating paper proofs, even though we would do all the changes in editing online, but we would still circulate paper proofs from person to person. So everything suddenly became digital. Um, we were all reporting remotely. And in fact, that was one of the inspirations by this May's issue. We, we started last May with this sort of talking to lots of people about the pandemic. And we thought, well, it'll be interesting this May as we talk to them about the anniversary um, to reflect a little bit on the pandemic, too. So we sort of bookended this odd year um, with two packages where we reached out to a lot of Atlantans. Yes, and I, I admire the section you have on Atlanta's essential workers for all of the recognition of... Atlanta leaders and movers and shakers. It was impressive to read about these people in what's considered everyday jobs, essentially saving our lives. Right, I mean, 
their role in our lives, you realize how much we depend on them. And it's just inspiring how they just, you know, came through and they were often taken for granted, but they um, are so dedicated to what they do and, and do it so well. And they really brought us through. So we wanted to start with them. You are the magazine's second female editor. How will you continue to work towards diversifying the newsroom and the <laughs> subjects you cover? Yes, that's been a challenge because our staff has shrunk. We've had, we have fewer and fewer staffers. So I haven't really had, you know, a lot of opportunities to become more diverse by hiring. The magazine already was pretty well. We did have a good mix of men and women. So that, that was good. But other types of diversity, we were woefully behind. And three years ago, to sort of compensate for that, I set up an editorial advisory board that meets quarterly. We, we, we didn't quite make quarterly last year with all the chaos, but we've been meeting for three years. And that board is very diverse. Um, it would have you know a lot of names you know on it, um, like Al Vivian and Nathaniel Smith and Soon Me Kim. Um, and they, they've really helped us plan stories. That's sort of the purpose is to look at the stories we have coming up and they help us think about what angles we might have overlooked or whom we should talk to that we might not have thought of. And that has helped a lot. We've, we've always had diverse, you know, writers and story topics, but it really has to start at the editorial level, at the planning level, because your bias comes through in the stories you choose to cover or how you choose to cover them. Um, so they've helped us with that. You know, we're working on it as we hire. I will, we will be diversifying. We've diversified some with the last couple of people we've added. What are your hopes for the magazine's future? I mean, in next 60 years, next five years? Oh, gosh. You know, it'll be interesting to see where media goes. Our digital presence, I'm sure, will expand. And the roles, I think we've been print first forever and ever, and we will be migrating towards digital first. Uh, I think people enjoy having the print magazine, it's something people sort of look at as a, a treat. You know, they can sit down with a print magazine, they can get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and, and just really spend some time reading a story. And I think print magazines will uh, survive because of that, sort of like print books have survived. But I think that we will, to be relevant, we will be growing our digital presence. And that's really fun because, you know, you're not limited by pages. It's a fun thing to ponder. Spoken like a true editor. <laughs> In chief, you are, Ms. Riley. Betsy, congratulations to you and to Atlanta on 60 years. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Lois. It's been fun. Atlanta Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Betsy Riley. You can see the 60th anniversary webpage at atlantamagazine.com. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2019, Atlanta Poet Laureate and Alliance Theater Artist-in-Residence Pearl Clegg and her husband, the writer Aaron Burnett Jr., co-created a children's book called In My Granny's Garden. I spoke with that dynamic duo about their children's story after the book was published. Here, Zarin talks about the inspiration for this story, beautifully illustrated by the artist Ratcliffe Bailey. I could read when I was three. So at five, my mother wanted me to go to school, but I was my birthday was too late in the year. So I stayed at my great-grandmother. We, we went down there every summer when my, my parents taught school, so they worked the Jersey Shore in the summer. So we would spend the whole summer at my great-grandmother's house. So we lived there in the summer. So at the end of the summer, they would come back to get us. But this one summer, they left me down there to start school at the age of five with a fake birthday. So, uh-huh. so my great-grandmother spent a lot of time with me then because this was, this was the time for the harvest, and I would have been in the way. So she really we spent every day in the garden. And we would squat in the garden with a, with a galvanized bucket of fresh spring water. We would pick the flowers, pick the uh, bugs off the plants, pick the fruit or the vegetable, and just dip it in the water, squat, and eat and talk. Oh, and we it, did that every day. It is yeah. so <laughs> special. And how did the artist Radcliffe Bailey, no less, become the illustrator? Well, Radcliffe is a a friend of ours and a neighbor of ours, and he had been to um, several of our performances when we were doing Live at Club Zebra, so that we knew Radcliffe and certainly admired his work. And when Chris asked to do the book and Zarin agreed to um, work with me and to let us use this wonderful story, and then I thought to myself, well, you know, I wonder if Radcliffe would do it. He's a friend. He lives around the corner. (laughs) We can ask him. So I asked him if he would be interested in working with us on the project, and he immediately agreed, which was so wonderful because he had a a different kind of idea about what you could put in a book for young people. And Zarin had a lot of photographs, um, not only of his family, but also of the land. They still own a good portion of that land, so that he took um, to Radcliffe when we went to talk with him. He took not only the pictures of the people in his family who were in this story, but also um, some views of the garden and of the land itself, so that when Radcliffe did the paintings, he was actually reacting to and being involved with the actual pictures of that land. Oh. So it, it really became such a, a wonderful collaboration for us because it was a chance for all of us who were not there in that garden to really kind of walk with Zarin into that place. Oh, it, 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 it is exquisite, as is the story. 
I hadn't stopped to realize just how extraordinary food coming out of the ground (laughs) could appear to a a three-year-old. Exactly. (laughs) And I also thought about um, the illustrations, particularly now, Pearl, since you've told me that Radcliffe Bailey put some of the photographs of your own family into his illustrations. I presumed the narrator was a little boy, because I know it's Aaron's story. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that illustration with the little girl, then I thought, oh, well, it's meant for a girl. Okay, the, the, the narrator... Is every child? It's a child. Is that it's correct? a kid, right? Exactly. exactly. But who's the little girl in that photograph? That's my mother. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's my mother and my. That's my mother and her mother. Oh. My grandmother and my great grandmother is who the story is about. But great great granny's garden is a little bit much for a title. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and we called her Ma, so that wouldn't have been clear, been have been clear to everybody else. I thought but, Granny sounded very British, you know, the kind of Downton Abbey thing. That came from Pearl because uh, <laughs> when Pearl, when I, Pearl's first grandchild was born, she wanted to decide what she wanted the child to call her. So she decided that she liked the Beverly Hillbillies' <laughs> gr- <laughs> Granny. <laughs> Because that granny was always at the end of the program. She was always waving. But then she got tired, so she would hold up her hand and wave. And as a little kid, I was fascinated by that. Like, how could you get tired waving? Now that I'm a granny, I understand sometimes. But when they asked me what to call me, and I, you know, my daughter asked me, and I said, well, granny, I would like for them to call me granny. So she said, fine. And some um, of the women that I know who were also having grandchildren were appalled because they didn't want their grandchildren to call them anything that let anybody know they were grandmothers. Now, what's that about? I think that's crazy. I said, even if they call you, you know, Joanne, or if they call you, you know, whatever your name is, they're still going to know this is their grandmother. So be proud of that. So I love that my grandchildren call me Granny. in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand used to issue out a warning she'd say Billy don't you run so fast might fall on a piece of glass might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand Co-authors husband-wife duo, Pearl Clegg and Saren Burnett, Jr. Their 2019 children's book, In My Granny's Garden, has since been adapted as an animated film. It's delightful. And you can stream it on the Alliance Theatre Anywhere platform. In a moment, we'll hear about an inclusive garden at Callenwald Fine Arts Center. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. Gardening can provide tremendous satisfaction for those who are in good physical condition. For those with challenges, gardening 
has not always been accessible. Even visiting some gardens can be difficult. Now, there is a community resource in Atlanta to change that situation. Here to tell us about the Ability Garden are Brooke Adams, the co-director of arts education and gallery director of Callenwald Fine Arts Center, along with the founder of Trellis, Rachel Cochran. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. How did this partnership between your two organizations come about? I actually reached out to Trellis. Callenwald completed the restoration of a greenhouse on our campus. And we also received a fund called the Frank Barham Fund that specifically is to make the arts accessible for those with mental and physical disabilities. And with those two things, we saw Trellis as an amazing organization to partner with and offer their horticultural therapy programming on our campus. Rachel, please tell us a bit about Trellis and how it got its start. Trellis is a 501c3 organization. We're really breaking down barriers, so to speak, in the world of accessible gardening. Trellis has a co-founder. Her name is Wendy Battaglia, and Wendy currently works on a part-time basis at the Shepherd Center, working as a horticultural therapist with brain and spinal cord injury patients. So we are very, very well versed in disability. I am a trained horticultural therapist, but I also had an experience in my family. My daughter, when she was 12, was hit by a car and she was seriously injured and has a traumatic brain injury, which causes lifelong injuries and challenges but she is mobile. But I think it really took having that up close and personal experience with disability to really help me to fully understand the isolation and the hardships that come for people with impaired physical mobility or cognitive disability that, you know, getting out and participating in recreational enjoyable activities and just being connected as a community is really a challenge. I've been a lifelong gardener and I've always been very observant and just really noticed that their gardens are not set up for people that can't walk. Community gardens, you know, the surface is not wheelchair friendly. I did my horticultural therapy internship at a wonderful organization called Skyland Trail It's an inpatient mental health for youth and adults here in Atlanta. And we had a visitor come uh, who had a brain injury and was in a wheelchair. And we really had a hard time maneuvering that person through the garden because it just wasn't set up for wheelchairs. And so moving forward, Trellis used the power of plants and gardening to change people's lives by creating activities with purpose and combating isolation and building community. Can you tell us about the 
therapeutic quality of gardening. You mentioned being outdoors, being engaged with others, seeing plants and beauty around you. What further therapy is involved for those living with physical or cognitive disabilities that gardening can provide? I can speak all day on that, (laughs) but (laughs) I'll try to keep it short and simple. I think the best thing to, to give everyone an overview is that gardening is such a normalizing experience that pretty much everyone has some familiarity and comfort with you know, outdoors and plants. Horticultural therapy focuses on goals. So there are treatment goals. And if you're in a clinical setting like Shepherd Center, the goal can be to use my hands again. And gardening has so much handwork where you're, you know, holding a trowel or scooping soil or potting plants or holding a watering can. And also, if you are mobile, but maybe are recovering from an injury, you can stand and walk and bend and stoop. So it's a wonderful, happy place to be if you're in a recovery scenario, like a rehab hospital. But the other angle is there's a lot of emotional support that comes with gardening And I would like to just touch a little bit on, I work with a group of incarcerated women in DeKalb County, and we teach them organic farming skills, and they donate the food to a local food pantry. So what that is doing for them is the garden has become this just magnificent space that makes people happy and provides a refuge and provides focused activities that really help them cope with prison life. And then being able to grow the food and donate it to the outside community really makes them feel connected to the community, unlike they would have that opportunity. And they're also learning a lot about healthy food. And a lot of them have dreams of being gardeners or starting their own farm when they get released. It's very powerful the way people just become alive, you know, when they're in a gardening scenario. And you're providing them with a sense of purpose as well. I did a session at our transitional center where the incarcerated women are, you know, learning skills and, you know, they're able to get out and get a part-time job in the community while they're still incarcerated. But it's a step to getting them closer to getting back to the community and, and getting their lives back. But one of the women came up to me and said how much she loved working with plants and that her dream was to create a farm-based skin body product company, that she wanted to be an entrepreneur, that that was her dream. Wow. Now, The Ability Garden will debut at Callenwald on November 14th. What makes up an Ability Garden? Well, Callenwald itself is just an incredible space. I mean, you go down the driveway, you feel like you're in another land. The trees are huge. The wildlife is running amok. There's a fox family and not to mention just the beauty of the home and and the old trees. But Callenwald is set up with a beautiful glass greenhouse that has a wheelchair accessible pathway. 
And when we saw that, the lights clicked. We're like, this is the place. This is the place we've been looking for. Because up until now, Trellis has been taking its programs to other organizations. Some of the organizations we serve are Kate's Club. We work with a housing organization here in Atlanta called Mercy Housing. I do a senior garden club. We have a mental health facility out in Sandy Springs called the Cottages at Mountain Creek. I had some at-risk youth students down in Vine City that I worked with last year. So we were really running all over Atlanta, and our dream was to have a space that we could call home and that people could come to us and we could have a garden space that would be ours that we could do programming out of. But it had to be (laughs) impaired mobility friendly And when we saw that greenhouse with the wheelchair access, we just thought it was a great fit. And so Callenwald has some surrounding garden spaces that we are working on. And we just built a beautiful raised bed garden that is now fully wheelchair accessible as well. And it's really been great because people, I won't say they're beating the doors down, but (laughs) everyone I run into sounds like, yes, we would love to have a piece of this. This sounds exactly like what we need. So uh, our first clients was wonderful special ed students out of Inman Middle School. And they were right down the street from Callenwald and just a bus ride away. So we worked with the special ed teachers and we've done several sessions with them. Everything kind of hit a standstill this year with uh, the pandemic, but the special ed students really do not have a lot of opportunity to get outside and garden and, and be in the nature setting. And we provide purposeful activities in the greenhouse for them, learning about plants, growing food. Uh, One of the sessions we did was making cookies for the birds. So we made bird seed cookies and we got to hang them up all over Kellenwald. And, you know, it was a way to just connect the students to something fun and different and connect them to nature and the teachers just think it's a wonderful thing. It teaches them about focusing and paying attention and following directions, and they love it. The thing is, it's so easy because they really enjoy it. They love the plants. They love the freedom to walk and walk on the trails and be outside. And then I work with the Stroke Survivors Support Group out of Emory Rehab Hospital, And I have a new client, which is the Ruby A. Neeson Diabetes Foundation. It's an education and awareness support organization for people living with diabetes. I read that the entire Ability Garden at Callenwald was built in one month. Is that correct? Well, I'll say I have some wonderful volunteers. My husband's one of them. I happen to be surrounded by engineering type men. And so they got out there and helped design it. And the Atlanta Botanical Garden actually donated the lumber. So I wanted to give a big shout out to Mo Hemmings is the community outreach manager for the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And she helped us get the project off the ground with the lumber donation. Callenwald has been supportive the whole step of the way. (laughs) 
Brooke always said, just whatever you need, whatever you need. But the thing about Callenwald and gardening is, you know, my, my dream is it's going to be Atlanta Botanical Garden number two. So in order to make that happen, we want it to be a special place, a beautiful place, and Rome was not built in one day. So while the raised beds are there and functioning and the greenhouse is amazing, we envision, you know, working with our groups to create this space. And we want our, our clients to do it and to be a part of it because I think buy-in is very important and we want them to have a part in building this garden that we hope will be a legacy for Callenwald and Atlanta. I'd like to say also, not only that, but Rachel was out there every single day. It wasn't just volunteers. It was definitely a labor of love. And that was evident seeing Rachel and Trellis out there every day building this garden. So Rachel, it's not just <laughs> everyone. You really drove this forward and it's so appreciated. Well, it, is, it is passion. We are very passionate. We believe in what we're doing, and some, I was laughing. I said, you know, if I had a choice between going to Italy or starting a new garden, I think I'd pick start a new garden. <laughs> it's just, I love purpose and reward. What types of plants are you growing in the Ability Garden at Callenwald? I'll say the ones I'm dreaming of growing. So, well, the funny thing about the Callenwald greenhouse is no one was actually grooming the space. They have a beautiful community garden in the back, but the front of it's a little ho-hum. So I said, you know, we got to make something happen out here. So I started building a, a native plant garden. And I love education. I love teaching people about plants. So what's in the native plant garden is, uh, you know, simple things, you know, marigolds and zinnias. And I put in some purple okra plants because they're very magnificent looking when they start growing. We have some grasses and uh, some herbs, but I'm kind of a pseudo landscape designer. So I'm always looking at the period of Callenwald and what plants will go there and trying to keep it historically accurate. And, and the raised beds, of course, we love to grow vegetables because my kids, when you plant a sweet potato and they get to pull that thing up in, you know, four or five months when it's ready to be harvested, it's like, you know, digging for buried treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that raises a question I had. You mentioned the at-risk youth you work with and the special ed students. Gardening requires patience. I wondered how you provide the encouragement and the reward that may need to come sooner with some of your volunteers. <laughs> That's a very good question <laughs> because I was looking at the raised beds yesterday and we, we do have a wonderful partnership. One of my grant partners is the Paideia School and the Paideia School has their own growing operation. They have a tremendous urban agriculture program for their students, but part of it is a social justice initiative. And so Paideia grows the plants for my trellis programs. And so I have farmer Aaron at the Paideia School who always has something ready for me. So if I feel like 
we need something more immediate with our groups instead of starting something from seed then I have those plants available. And we did, we just, we had planted greens and Swiss chard and, and romaine lettuce. And, you know, there they all, you stick them in and the kids are like, wow, this is great. <laughs> do, do they ever eat with you? You know, they haven't yet because we just started the program with the students at the end of the year. Uh, but Brooke, you know, Brooke, we might want to touch on the the Callenwall Gala because that was really something I've been very hesitant about doing virtual sessions with my clients because gardening is so hands-on and, you know, in my mind, I'm just like, you know, there's no way we can do virtual gardening sessions. But Callenwald had a gala and Andrew Keenan, the executive director, thought it would be wonderful if the students could participate in some way and then we could share about the Ability Garden at the gala because I think some of the Callenwald supporters really didn't know what was going on with the Ability Garden. So we worked with the florist, Faith Flowers, that Callenwald uses for their events. And we honestly did a video on how to do floral arrangements. These were the centerpieces for the gala. And the teachers at um, Inman Middle delivered all the supplies to all the students. <laughs> the teachers said it took her like three hours one morning to get everything delivered. We did a Zoom session on floral arrangement that afternoon and picked them all up that day. And they honestly looked fantastic. I was thinking we're going to have to spend hours, you know, maybe making them look better <laughs> for the event, but the students did a great job and the parents were just, I think they were so excited because I think learning virtually for special ed students has, has been a challenge and they love hands-on and they love purpose and they build it as a community helper day where, you know, I was a little concerned about having them make flower arrangements and then come pick them up and take them away. And I told the teachers, I said, well, can we do another one with them so they can have one at home? And she says, you know, they're learning. They're learning about helping and that they're helping the community. They're helping Callenwald raise money for these types of programs. And I thought that was a wonderful lesson. And it was also a lesson for me. It is a great lesson. Brooke, this is for you as well as Rachel. How do you hope to see the Ability Garden and other such programs related to it expand? I think that this Ability Garden is sort of like a seed being planted at Cowanwald to really make all of our programs accessible. You know, we're in a historic campus, 100 years old, and the Frank Barham Fund and Trellis and this Ability Garden just sort of feel like the beginning of the next chapter for Callenwald to be more accessible in our programming and to offer therapeutic services such as this horticultural therapy. So the next chapter, I just see this flourishing. I see all of our grounds being more accessible I see us doing more horticultural therapy across our campus, making a more sustainable campus. It's really exciting. I feel like this partnership is just the beginning of a whole new chapter at Cowanwald, and we're really excited about it. Brooke had a session with some artists about making some planter-type pottery for the garden so we can have a fusion of nature and art. 
because it is an artist center and um, we do a lot of nature art with with our clients which i love we do press flower art i've been doing that with my uh incarcerated women one of my dreams is some of the middle school students at inman middle graduated and went on to high school and when you start growing plants, especially in a greenhouse, it requires a big personal commitment to take care of those plants and help them grow and become, you know, a, an asset for our organization. Because I told Brooke, I said, I'm tired of buying plants. We're going to grow all our plants ourselves one day. So I'm in early stages of talking with the APS high school about a vocational training program for some of the high school students with, with special needs. I think gardening and landscaping are great career pathways. Well, congratulations on this wonderful endeavor and a fantastic addition to our community. Brooke Adams of Callan Walt, Rachel Cochran, the co-founder of Trellis, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us in this opportunity. Brooke Adams, co-director of arts education at Callan Walt, and Rachel Cochran, co-founder of Trellis Horticultural Therapy Alliance. The Ability Garden is located on the grounds of Callenwald Fine Arts Center on Briarcliff Road. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.